Well, thank you, choir. Appreciate your your testimony and song this morning. Thank you to our praise band, our praise singers, choir, to Mark, to Susan for their leadership today and leading us in worship. Well, let's turn in God's Word this morning to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, as we come to uh, the church at Philadelphia, who was known as the Faithful Church. We're told in a lot of different ways in Scripture, as believers, that we need to persevere. We need to be faithful in all that we do. It's not always easy to persevere, especially in the face of opposition. And we live in a world that is increasingly more and more opposed to the truths of Christianity found in the Bible. Well, to persevere is the responsibility of both individual Christians and churches. Perseverance is steady persistence in a course of action, a purpose, a state, etc., especially in spite of difficulties, obstacles, and discouragement. Anybody ever faced obstacles, discouragement, uh, opposition from other people? Well, we certainly all have. But perseverance means that we overcome those things We don't succumb to them. We don't get dragged down by them. We don't give up because of them. We keep going in spite of them. If we simply work hard and we simply seek to do our best and we ask for God's help, God can do a lot of things through us. God can do a lot of things, period. And He can work in ways that we can't hardly imagine and even understand, He will take care of the rest. If we just simply do what we're supposed to do, we simply do what God has asked us to do, what His Word tells us we need to do, God will take care of the rest. But guess what? God doesn't always do it as quickly as we would like for Him to do it. He doesn't always do it in the way that we think maybe He should do it. C.S. Lewis, most of you know that name, who was a prominent professor in England, writer and thinker. His books have influenced people now for almost a century. C.S. Lewis was a bachelor most of his life, but finally married a lady, an American divorcee by the name of Joy Gresham. Later on in his life, in fact, at about the age of 60, I think, after only two years of marriage, Joy had cancer and died. But Joy had two sons from her previous marriage, and C.S. Lewis agreed to take care of those boys. And he did. He honored that obligation. But C.S. Lewis himself died only two years later. The youngest boy, Douglas, grew up, got married to a woman by the name of Mary, and they moved to Tanzania. And he was not a believer. Neither him nor his wife. Several years later, Wheaton College was doing a tribute to C.S. Lewis, and they asked Douglas and his wife to be a part of this great event. So they came, they traveled to the United States to be a part 
of this event. And as part of his honorarium for participating in this, uh, this event, he was given uh, basically a portfolio of C.S. Lewis's books on audio tape. His wife Mary began listening to those and ultimately became a Christian at the age of 40. She immediately began praying and encouraging and trying to coax her husband into listening to these things and to reading the Bible and to thinking about what God had said. And then about seven years after Mary became a Christian, Douglas became a Christian. You think, wow, that's a long drawn out thing. I mean, here C.S. Lewis is, he's writing these books back in the 40s and 50s and into the early 60s before he died. He dies, they have an event, they honor him, all this stuff goes on years and years and years go by, but finally, long after he's dead and gone, Douglas becomes a Christian. Mary, his daughter-in-law, became a Christian. And there's some picture in that for us. As we bear testimony of Christ in a world where we're persecuted and we feel like they're coming at us all the time, that is, if we're living for Christ, we may feel like the last thing we have the strength to do is persevere. But we know from our own personal experience and we know from stories we hear, from truths that we hear, we know that God works in ways that go beyond our ways. He works with strength when all we feel is weak. God is stronger than us. The Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah that His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. So much higher are God's ways than our ways. And so much higher are His thoughts than our thoughts. He's simply telling us today, don't try to understand everything and all of the different ways. Just follow me. Just persevere. Just trust me. That's what God is saying to us today. And He'll take care of the rest. Too often we expect immediate results and we, in, and we seek instant gratification. But God's ways are much slower than our ways, but they're a lot more reliable. We don't like anything slow. Our world loves instant gratification. When was the last time you saw a TV commercial that said something to the effect of, well, we know you would love to buy this car now, but we are encouraging you to wait. There will be a better time later on. Advertisers don't waste money telling you to wait. They tell you now is the best time to buy. Instant gratification. You've been wanting a new car, or maybe you haven't even been thinking about wanting a new car, and they run this ad, and lo and behold, you're down at the dealership and you're buying a new car. Our world doesn't understand delayed gratification. They only understand instant gratification. But we're told in God's Word that God's ways are slower God is long-suffering towards us. But God's ways are much more reliable than our ways. We see the patient character of God revealed in Romans chapter 12 and verse 12, where Christians are com commended to rejoice in hope. 
Be patient, he writes in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. We're to rejoice, first of all, in hope. Hope is a precious commodity. Romans 5.5 says, But now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We're told also there to be patient in tribulation. Long-suffering, patient as we feel the pressure that is tribulation. And we're to bathe all that we do in prayer, continuing in a pattern of prayer, which is the healthiest thing that we can do as believers. Above all, God is simply calling on His people, His church, to be faithful to His Word and persevere through all trials, tests, and tribulations that come along. Clearly, the church at Philadelphia was doing what the Lord expected every church to do. They were lifted up as an example of faithfulness. The Lord had nothing negative to say about them like He has the other churches. He only had words of encouragement. He only had positive things to say about this faithful church. I invite you to stand with me now as we read from God's Word, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3 concerning the church at Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world." to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God, and he shall go on, he shall go out no more. I will write to him the name, I will write on him the name of God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Lord, as we come before you this morning, and we come before this text of Scripture, I pray that you would guide us, guide our hearts and our minds into understanding. Challenge us, Father, to be more like the church at Philadelphia, as both a corporate body and as individual believers. We pray these things now in Jesus' name, amen, as you're seated. The first thing we see in our text this morning is a description of Christ to the congregation based on the description of the vision of the Son of Man in chapter 1. Now the name Philadelphia means brotherly love. 
The nickname of the city of Philadelphia, right here in our own country in Pennsylvania, is the city of brotherly love. And that comes from the name. Two Greek words, Adelphos, that means brother, and phileo, which means love or a friendship kind of love. Therefore, the name Philadelphia means brotherly love. Philadelphia was a small city located about 40 miles southeast of Sardis, the last church that is addressed in the earlier part of chapter 3. Its location, uh, its vineyards, the wine production that went on there made it a, a wealthy city commercially and a quite significant city. Christ is described as being holy, true, the one who has the key of David, and the one who opens and shuts doors. So he's one that is seen as important by comparison to everything else and everyone else. His holiness means that he is set apart. If something is holy, it's not like the rest. Holiness means something is sacred or it's set apart. It has a specific purpose. It's like we call this room that we're in the sanctuary. It is a holy place. It, it is a place that we come as believers to worship. We don't just do anything in here. We worship in here. This is a holy place. Christians are called upon to live holy lives. The Bible says to be holy in all of our conduct. In other words, the Bible says to be set apart in all of your conduct. Don't be like the rest. Don't be like the world. Jesus is said here to be holy. He who is holy. And also, he who is true. Being true speaks to his faithfulness. And being the one who keeps his word or keeps his promises. If we say that someone is true, that means they're honest. They keep their word. He is a true individual. He is a true believer. He is a true, uh, he is someone who believes in what he says. He's true blue. Jesus is true. He's faithful. He speaks words of truth. Instead of being false, Jesus is true. He is said to be the one who has the key of David. A key in Scripture represents authority. It comes up several times in several different instances, but it always has to do with representing authority. Whoever has a key has control. They have the ability to unlock doors, to unlock uh, mysteries. As the holder of the key of David, Jesus alone has sovereign authority to determine those who enter His kingdom, His messianic kingdom. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18 reveals to us that Jesus has the keys to death and hell. Here He is depicted as having the keys to salvation and blessing. I'm glad Jesus holds those keys. I'm glad He didn't give them to me because I would lose them or I would mess them up. And so would you. I'm glad He holds the keys to that. You know, if, if, if He handed it out and gave it out to everyone or whatever, the world would be in a chaotic mess. But we're thankful that that is vested with one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one that is worthy to hold those keys. And the reference here, uh, the keys to David, 
as a reference again to the messianic kingdom. David is a very important, not only Old Testament character and figure, but all throughout the New Testament. It was very important that Christ be born through the lineage of David. Finally, he is identified as he who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one opens. Here, Christ's omnipotence is emphasized. What does omnipotent mean? It means all power, omnipotent, all powerful. He is truly of unlimited power. In other words, Christ, what Christ does, cannot be overruled by a higher authority. The things that Jesus does never get struck down by anyone. He is the highest authority. There is none greater than Him. There is none higher than Him. There is no one that holds any more power. He is omnipotent. Jesus Christ is the holy, true, sovereign omnipotent Lord of the church. That is what He is. Next, notice with me, our second point, a word of compliment and encouragement to this congregation. And we see that from verse 8. The deeds of this church cause the Lord no concern. He said some pretty tough stuff about some of the other churches. He told Sardis that they were a dead church. He told Thyatira that they were a corrupted church. He told Pergamus that they were a compromising church. He told Ephesus that they had left their first love. For them, him to come to Philadelphia and not have anything against them, in fact, his concern solely was for them and not because of them. He was concerned for them and for their well-being. He loved the people in Philadelphia, and he wanted only the best for him. His true and faithful believers, his true and faithful church, all around this world, even the ones that are being persecuted, right now today as I speak in Iraq, and in other places of the world that we never even hardly hear about. You have to... Really look hard to find the ways that Christians are quietly being persecuted all around this globe. Not only today, but in the past. And persecution is increasing against Christians. But this was a faithful church. The phrase, I have set before you an open door that no one can shut in this context, appears to refer to their entrance into heaven, the new Jerusalem. It's certainly possible this open door also is referring to service and witness. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul wrote, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, For a great and effective door has been opened to me, but there are many adversaries. A door is open to all of us as believers. We can witness for Christ. We can live for Christ. 
We can learn more about Christ. The door is open for all of that and more. But guess what? There are a lot of adversaries out there. As we try to do that, there are a lot of people that are against us. There are people right here in this community that are against that, and there's people all around the world that are against that. They don't want to see the gospel spread. They don't want to see people come to Christ. And that negative effort is spearheaded by that adversary of old, Satan. And many people are doing his work today that claim they don't even believe in him. That's the irony. People all around the world are doing Satan's work and doing a good job of it. But yet if you ask them, they claim to not even believe in a literal Satan. Pretty amazing. Life is full of irony, and that's one of the biggest ones. Despite the fact they had little strength and only a little bit of power, they had made a positive impact on this city. How many times in Scripture are people commended who put forth a little bit of effort, even though, but, but, but in spite of the little amount, it's genuine. Think of the widow who brought the two mites. And she was commended over those who had put forth a lot of money, given a lot of money, but yet they had done it insincerely. How did they make this impact? The church at Philadelphia, the believers at Philadelphia, made it by keeping God's Word. You can believe God's Word, you can claim to believe God's Word, but if you really believe God's Word, it's going to affect your life. I learned a long time ago from an evangelist friend of mine uh, that's based out of Arkansas. One of his favorite sayings was this. He said, Any kind of religion that doesn't change the way you live your life won't save your soul and it won't take you to heaven when you die. There are a lot of so-called believers today, a lot of people in uh, name only that are Christians that are going around in the world. And they're giving true Bible-believing Christians a bad name. They're doing what they want, when they want, and they're basically living overall selfish kind of lives. And Christianity really has been reduced to nothing more than just a ticket that they carry in their wallet or their purse to get them in to heaven when they die. And that's what they're trusting in. That's what they're believing in. But the Bible has a lot to say about the true character of a true believer. It's not because I say so. It's not because any preacher says so. It's because... The inerrant and the infallible word of the living God says so. Christians live different. They're faithful. Just like the church at Philadelphia. Just like the believers there that were small in number. And they must have felt like the world was closing in upon them, trying to live for Christ in that hostile environment. But nevertheless, they still were faithful. They still, you can almost see them smiling, hugging one another when they come together for worship, encouraging one another, 
greeting one another with a holy kiss, opening the Word together, sharing the truths of God together, and it gave them strength to go back out and face it again. They sought encouragement and they got it from one another. The Lord commends them because they had not denied His name in an environment where it would have been so easy to have done so. It is so easy to compromise today. It is so easy to tell people that, well, you know, you're right. You're right. Uh, What is there wrong with two people of the same sex getting married? You're right. What is really so bad about abortion? You're right. Why do people really need to go to church? You're right, uh, the claims of Jesus are pretty exclusive and closed-minded, aren't they? You see, it's easy to compromise in the workplace. It's easy to compromise at school. It's easy to compromise with, with your neighbors, your extended family. It's easy to compromise everywhere, and there's tremendous pressure. Remember, the word tribulation means pressure. There's tribulation, there's pressure upon us to conform to the world around us. And there, that's nothing new. That was going on at Philadelphia a long time ago. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 2 describes the tribulation. Saints who refuse to take the mark of the beast saying, Here is the patience. Here is the perseverance of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and faith of Jesus. It's never easy to stand faithful to God in the face of persecution, but it is always the right thing to do. Where are the people today that will do what is right because it is right and not because it benefits them in some external way? Where's the politician who will say, this is right, I don't care if I get voted out of office, I don't care if, I, if, if people laugh at me or mock me or whatever, This is right, and so I'm going to do it therefore. Where where are the fathers who will say, this is right for my family. This is what we're going to do as a family. I don't care if the kids like it. I don't care if the community likes it. We're going to do what's right because it is right. Where's the church that will say, I don't care if we don't look like or act like all the other churches around. We're going to do what's right. That's going to be our standard here. Where are those who will take a stand today? It's never easy to stand faithful to God in the first pace of persecution, but it's always the correct thing to do. Former U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft wrote in his autobiography, he says, sometimes when you are doing the right thing, you have to stay strong, steely, and silent even though you are getting beaten up by others for doing what is right, often it takes a long time for the truth to emerge. You know, as I was looking at this letter to the church at Philadelphia this week, I couldn't help but think of a church that I'm very familiar with. Uh, the, church, the pastor of this church is, is one of my very dearest friends. In ministry. I'll never forget the first time I met him. He'd been a pastor, he'd been the pastor of that church for about five years at the time. And I remember we sat down and we were having lunch together. 
And I asked him how things were going there, and he kind of smiled and he said, well, we've kind of been going through about a five-year purging (laughs) at our church. Out of an interesting way to look at it, I guess. But as I've been intimately familiar with that church now for almost ten years, and with his ministry there, slowly but surely things have changed. And that church has little by little grown into a church that as I was reading about the church at Philadelphia here and thinking about it, that was the first church that came to my mind. I remember they went through a process called Healing the Heart of Your Church based on a book by a man by the name of Ken Quick. In fact, there's a, there's a companion book that goes along with, with the book of called Healing the Heart of Your Church that has case studies of churches he's worked with and he actually has a, has a section in there about East Boulder Baptist Church. Let me tell you something if you're not too familiar with Boulder, Colorado. It's a liberal place. It's a dark place. It's a difficult place. My office when I was pastor in Broomfield was 10 minutes away from the CU campus in Boulder. Larry Draymond's church is kind of on the east side of it. And you drive by it, there's nothing fancy about the building. In fact, in some ways, the way that it's built, it, it almost looks like a big house that's been converted into a church. Now, it doesn't look like that from the inside, but from the outside, that's kind of my impression of it. There's nothing... Uh, eye-catching about it. It's rather plain. There's nothing fancy about their auditorium. It looks nice, but it's not fancy. There's not anything about their building that's fancy. There's not anything about the way they do things that's fancy either. They preach the Word. They sing praises together. They have a wonderful deaf ministry at that church. Uh, They even hold uh, conferences. uh, Other people in the metropolitan area come there. But what's different about them? What's different about them is they're not compromising. They're true to God's Word. They're certainly not dead. They're alive. They're not corrupted. There's no corruption in that church. They're certainly not a lukewarm church like what Laodicea is described as. But there's a price that they do pay for living for God in that community, in that town, in that area of the state, where it's more important to be green than it is to be a Christian, where it's more important to be politically correct than it is biblically correct. But they're being faithful, and they're being true, and they're being exactly what The church at Philadelphia was doing. They weren't perfect. The Lord doesn't say, Hallelujah, I found a perfect church. No, He just said they're faithful. They're just doing what He asked them to do. That's what God desires from the church. Every church. Just do what He asks. That's what He wants. The third thing we see here from verse 9, there's a word of rebuke to the persecutors of the congregation, those who persecute them, just like the Smyrna church, the second church we looked at, Philadelphia also faced hostility from unbelieving Jews who are referred to in the letters to both churches as a synagogue of Satan. These people claim to be Jews, but their claims were lies. 
How do we know if a person was really a Jew? How did they know back then? It was a lot more than just mere ceremony. It was more than just saying, I, hey, I'm a Jew. It was more than just having been circumcised. It was more than just trying to keep the letter of the law. Paul actually wrote in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but rather from God. The concept, guess what, is true for Christians as well. He who is not a Christian who is one outwardly, it's not about baptism, it's not about walking the aisle, it's not about uh, carrying a Bible under your arm, it's not about having a little fish symbol on the back of your car. It's about living for Jesus. It's about Christ invading your heart and setting up residence there. That is a true believer, not one who's just one externally. It's quite amazing, though, that Jesus tells the persecuted Christians at Philadelphia that those who are, per who are persecuting them will ultimately come and bow at their feet. Now, what does he mean by that? Bowing at someone's feet signifies total defeat and submission. It doesn't mean that they were going to come and bow down and worship them. It just meant that they would ultimately, those who were persecuting, would ultimately come and submit, recognizing that their authority was greater and that their truth was the truth. What this means is that in the end, every persecutor of every believer and every church in Philadelphia would admit that they were wrong. Admitting they were wrong, swallowing their pride would be a big deal. It would be tough, but it would be exactly what the Lord said they would do. And notice finally, in verses 10 through 13, there's a promise to this congregation. The believers at Philadelphia had already passed many tests. There the Lord is promising to spare them from the ultimate test. The promise holds true for all faithful believers all throughout history. And there have been a lot of people that have given their life for their faith down through time. The specific promise is likely a promise uh, to rapture or to remove them from this period of unparalleled tribulation or unparalleled pressure. Now some see this kind of more in, in more general terms and say that it's just simply that they will be protected from general uh, persecution. Christians must be ready though for the return of Jesus, whether it was them or whether it's us, anyone in between them and us, or anyone that will live in the future. They need to be ready for the return of the Lord. That hour of trial, that hour of testing in verse 10 is the same as Daniel's 70th week that we read about in Daniel chapter 9. It's the same as what Jeremiah wrote out as as the time of Jacob's trouble, as he wrote in Jeremiah chapter 30, and the seven-year tribulation talked about here in Revelation. The Lord promises to keep His church out of this future time of testing that will come upon unbelievers. Because the Lord is coming quickly, there is the necessity to hold fast to what they have. What do they have? They have hope. They have a reward. They have a crown. Revelation 2.10 defines the crown more specifically 
as being the crown of life. Who has the crown of life? All believers. All those who will spend eternity in heaven. But we won't hold on to those crowns. We won't wear those around heaven as a sign of pride. It says we'll cast our crowns before the foot of the throne because we'll recognize that we're not worthy and that anything we ever were is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy. It is the reward for those who faithfully endure to the end, trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. Jesus counsels them to be overcomers in the continued face of opposition. He promises to make them pillars in the temple. A pillar represents stability and permanence. In fact, in ancient ruins, a lot of times the only thing still standing are the pillars. Everything else has crumbled and fallen, but many times the pillars are still left. And if they're not left, they were the last thing to go. Christ also promises to write on them the name of God. This is a sign of ownership. All true Christians belong to God. He will write on us His name because He owns us. We are His. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become New. Christians have eternal citizenship in heaven's capital, the new Jerusalem that is described in Revelation chapter 21. Finally, the Lord promises believers His new name. Christ's name represents the fullness of His personhood, and in heaven all believers will see Him just as He is, not in part, but wholly, and will see Him fully. To Him who has ear to hear, let Him hear, what the Spirit says to this church and to all of the churches. If you can take it, if you can receive it, this is what He admonishes them to do. This morning I ask you, are you an overcomer or are you being overcome? Today, do you need to ask the Lord for strength? Have you given your problems, your cares, your concerns, everything that you have over to the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted Him for salvation, repented of your sins and said, Lord, this isn't working for me. I need you. I need you so badly to take control of my life. And I place my faith and my trust in you today. The people at Philadelphia, that church had done that. And it wasn't all roses from that point on. It was difficult, but they persevered. They were faithful and they kept on going. They kept on working. And the Lord commends them. And in essence, He's saying to them, Well done, good and faithful servants. I'm concerned for you. I'm not concerned about you because you've been faithful. What's the Lord going to say to you? If He looks at your life, when you stand before Him, is He going to commend you and say, You have been faithful? Or is He going to be concerned? Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for this time together. Thank You for this Word. Thank You for the church at Philadelphia and the example that it sets. Lord, it's a difficult day here in the 21st century to be Christians. To live for You, it's hard. The pressure against us is growing. If a teacher tries to say something positive about Christianity in the classroom. Their job is in jeopardy. 
If our young people try to bring a Bible to school and talk about Christ and witness in many places they're in jeopardy of being suspended or even expelled. In many workplaces there's hostility, outright hostility toward Christianity. There's a political correctness that is ungodly that pervades many companies and many departments, many small businesses. There are many neighborhoods, there are many towns, there are many streets, there are many cities even that are hostile to believers. And it's getting worse. And we've got to decide now who we're going to live for. Help us to make a commitment today to be faithful even in the face of persecution, looking to the example of the church at Philadelphia. If there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that today you might draw them by the power of your Holy Spirit to come and commit their life to you. Whatever the other needs might be, Father, maybe it be for renewal. Maybe you've laid a special task upon someone's heart that they would like to share. Father, maybe there's a need for church membership. Whatever the needs are, Father, we know that You meet people's needs. You care for us. You love us. We ask, Father, this morning that You might bless in this time of invitation. Let hearts get right with You. For we pray this all now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.